trust that you are doing well this evening. Take your copy of God's Word there, hopefully in front of you, and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, uh, tonight we are going to continue our sermon series on mission, and we are going to turn our attention to uh, a life on mission. We're going to look at one particular life tonight and consider it together. Um, this has been an interesting sermon series for me to do personally, just because we've approached the summer a little bit differently, um, picked a theme, and then um, Brendan has been uh, my intern this summer and assigned him with coming up with the passages that we would cover. So just always fun to preach what other people um, have picked out for you. And so it's just a good reminder uh, for me. I don't say this very often, and this doesn't necessarily guarantee that we'll do it. But if there's something that you think, man, this would be really cool for us to cover in small groups or um, a Wednesday night series to do, I'm always looking for more input. So if there's something that you think, I say that, and then somebody will say some like really obscure thing, um, and I'll be like, okay, well, we'll pray about that, but I already know what the Lord's answer. That's what I'm thinking. I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you uh, have something, that you, man, you think that would be super helpful for us to consider together. It's one of the reasons why, in addition with the um, adults on Wednesday nights in the fall, we're going to be looking at cults and world religions. Um, just more teaching time that we get to do together, and hopefully it is helpful for you. So, we're going to turn our attention tonight, though, to a life on mission. Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 21 as kind of a passage that's going to frame um, where we will go. And we're going to flip through uh, one particular person's life tonight and look at some different things. So if you would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse number 15. This is God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, this is going to kind of, these next few verses through verse 21 are going to frame tonight's sermon. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word and praise him for keeping it for us. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight and we are thankful that we have your word, that it 
is something that we can hold in front of us, that we can hear from you, that we can know how you desire for us to live. So we ask tonight as we turn our attention to the life of Joseph and consider what it might look like for us in different areas of our lives to live on mission for you. I pray that tonight we would leave encouraged that your word does not just give us mere instructions like assembling furniture, but it gives us real life examples with real people who struggled to live out their lives so that we would know that it is possible to live faithful lives on mission for you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, um, as an avid book reader, which I know immediately that like turns off some of you like harder than I even probably can wrap my brain around. But as an avid book reader, one of the things that I love is biographies. I love to be able to dive in and understand maybe what it was like or um, what a particular era was. I love history specifically, but I find history boring if you boil it down to dates and places and names, which is unfortunately what most of you have experienced in regards to your history education, which is why you find history incredibly boring. But when you look at history through the lens of different people, you find characters that you can't help but enjoy to be around. And the benefit is they're not fictional. They're actually people who lived. It probably comes as no surprise to you then that in the world of U.S. history, I'm completely enamored with presidents. I find them incredibly fascinating. Um, I'm a campaign politics junkie. And what that means is I have a lot of time invested into something that nobody ever wants to talk about. I'm, I find polling data incredibly interesting, but I also find the different presidents in their lives interesting. Couple that with being an enormous Winston Churchill fan, and my life is completely satisfied in the world of history, not only U.S., but world history as well. You say, why limited to Churchill? Read about good biographies about Churchill. He's incredibly engaging and at times hilarious. But in the world of theology and the world that I live in day to day, I also find biographies incredibly helpful because they're encouraging to know that regular people can, in fact, change the world when they're using God's word to do it. Two men that stand out to me, one is Francis Schaeffer and then one from the Bible, the Apostle Paul, I find incredibly fascinating. And so I think it's helpful when we consider the different biographical stories of people in the Bible. And a lot of times we avoid our Old Testament because there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand. But there's also a lot of stuff that we do understand. And with God's help, we can understand all of his word. And so tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to peer into a biography that um, is hopefully going to be helpful you to, for you to think about when we talk about what does it mean to live on mission. We've kind of taught all these practical sermons on, on living on mission and tried to help you think through it. But now as we turn 
kind of the corner and head for home, because we're almost to the end of July, um, we want to look at a particular man and say, what does it look like in a life to live on mission? And what can we learn from someone who did it well? And that's why we turn our attention to Joseph. And so what I want to do tonight is I want us to turn the camera on three different scenes from Joseph's life. And I want us to look at those different scenes and say, what can we learn about this particular issue about living on mission from someone else's life? And so the first area, and you're going to need to flip over to Genesis chapter 39. We're going to make our way through Joseph's story, uh, hopefully quickly. We're going to look at first, what does it look like to live on mission in purity? And we talk about purity in this context, and there's a lot of different things that probably come to your mind. And I want you, for the sake of where we're headed, to try and block out all of the awkward 6th, 7th, and 8th grade church experiences where the boys go in one room and the girls go in another. So... We're not going to separate you tonight. We're going to keep you together. And I want you to block those out and let's consider what it looks like to live on mission in regards to our sexual activity in a mature way. So Genesis 39, look at verse number 6. I'm going to start about halfway through that verse. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass, verse 7, after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that he, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought, a, brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Verse 16, so she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. Here's what we read in this particular narrative, and we can set the context up this way. We know that Joseph was uh, the beloved son in the family, and he was sent to care for his brothers, and his brothers were like, we're sick of this guy getting treated better than the rest of us. Let's fillet him and be done with it. To which Reuben 
the responsible oldest sibling, and for all of us oldest siblings, we recognize in that moment, Reuben's showing great restraint. Yes, let's kill this guy. He, Reuben's response is, no, we can't do that. Let's throw him in a pit, because that makes a whole lot more sense. Um, so if you know the story, they put Joseph in a pit. Reuben goes off to take care of some things, and there's a caravan going to Egypt, and the other brothers sell Joseph into slavery, and Reuben comes back and is like, Where's Joseph? And they're like, well, we decided not to kill him. We decided to at least make some money off of him, so we sold him into slavery. And those brothers lie and convince their father that Joseph is dead. He was killed by a wild animal, and Joseph is sent to Egypt into slavery. And we know that Joseph is promoted up to serve as second in command in Potiphar's house, and he's responsible for all of these things. And that brings us to this particular scene. Early in Joseph's work here, we see that Potiphar's wife is enamored with Joseph and wants to sleep with him. And it looks like, and this is something that we tend to gloss over, that this is not just a one-time scenario. We often go immediately to the scene and go, look, Joseph's fleeing from sexual temptation and he's getting out of there. So, boom, like, Here's your example. But notice that Joseph is in a situation where every day he is being bombarded with, come lie with me. Joseph has a temptation that is literally in front of him every day that he knows is coming and that he knows he's going to be tempted with every day. It's safe to assume that Potiphar's wife is probably not ugly we, we know this from how uh the the history of the time period would suggest that it would be a, a very important thing for someone like potiphar who ruled in his position everything had to look a certain way it's amazing how that even today those small things like making sure that everything looks a certain way and you have a certain looking wife and a certain looking uh, kingdom that you rule over. Now, Potiphar is not the Pharaoh of the land, but he is in charge. He's a massive figure. And so here's Joseph day in and day out. Now, the benefit for Joseph is it's easy, probably, right? It's easy in his situation to be able to resist the temptation to sleep with Potiphar's wife when there's other people around. There's other people around that are going to know, who are going to talk, who are going to gossip. They, it's probably well known in Potiphar's house that Potiphar's wife has a thing for Joseph. And Joseph makes up his mind to resist. And to continue to resist. And notice that he's not resisting in his own strength and his own willpower. He's focused on who that sin would be against. He says at the end of verse number 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's motivation for living on mission. We could call it living on mission being sexually pure is not motivated by not getting a girl pregnant or getting an STD 
or there being people who talk about it, which more often than not seems to be the honest motivations for a lot of Christians. But in reality, Joseph's motivation is not any of those. His motivation is if I sleep with someone else's wife, I'm not only sinning against him, but I'm sinning against God. See, this is what ends up keeping Joseph on track. He knew that his sin wasn't ultimately against, first and foremost, another individual. In fact, his sin would be secondly against an individual. And you take it and pair it out to any particular temptation that you struggle with. This is a reminder that we need. That our sin is first and foremost against a holy, just God. And not against another individual first. Now there's the fallout from our sin, right? We sin against people. We really do. And we need to seek their forgiveness. That's not something that we shouldn't do. But we need to as our motivation for how and why we live out what it means to be a Christian. To keep in front of us that God first and foremost is who we answer to the great sense of relief that I have in this life is knowing that ultimately one day I won't have to answer to my wife, to my parents, to our kids, to anyone for how I live my life. I'm not ultimately responsible to any of them first and that's a relief initially when you think it, but then it becomes incredibly weighty and powerful to think that the person who I will give an answer and account to is a holy God who takes sin seriously. Now we give Joseph applause here. Way to go, bro. You are resisting temptation every day. But Joseph understands, and we see through this scene that and we shouldn't ever be fooled into thinking that a temptation is merely just going to stay where it is. But at different seasons and different times, that temptation is going to escalate. And that's what we see happening here. Verse 11 says, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. This is a perfect opportunity. The temptation lays in front of him as a perfect opportunity. No one else is in the house. No one but he and Potiphar's wife will know that this ever took place. Here's a lonely guy sold into slavery, away from his friends, his family, and we could say in a sanctified and guessing, this isn't in the biblical text, so all of you that are going to get frustrated, I said it, it's not here, but perhaps even a girlfriend. He's away from all of that. And he has the perfect opportunity in front of him to indulge his flesh. And Joseph responds like someone who's living on mission. He doesn't negotiate a different engagement level. 
uh, we can't sleep together, but, and it sure would be nice to do X, Y, or Z. Joseph doesn't stick around to figure out anything about her. Maybe instead I could stay here and we just talk. That'll certainly sizzle this situation down. The only people who are convinced of that are people who don't know anything. What does Joseph do, though? He doesn't stay. He doesn't continue. He doesn't peek around the corner. Verse verse 12 says, but he left his garment in her hand and ran outside. Let the chips fall where they may, Joseph says. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. He responds the way that 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us to respond to sexual temptation. It says, flee, run, get away. Don't stick around. Don't hang out. Don't try and figure out a lesser situation. He says, I'm out of here. Think about it for a minute. If you're honest, for one second, would not it have been so easy for him to just live it up? But he doesn't because he's convinced that God would be displeased. I've had conversations this week with some of our pastoral team talking about how we had better prepare for a new generation of people who struggle with sexual sin at levels that we've never seen before because you're constantly bombarded by it. And it never goes away. Never before have you had so much access to content that is sexually explicit in the mainstream. You get fooled on Netflix because you see an MA rating and you watch an episode and there doesn't seem to be anything bad. Then you watch three more and there's nothing bad. And then you watch another few episodes and then randomly in the middle of nowhere, you're caught off guard. Because they have to put that rating on there for some reason. It's not just like fun times where we just kind of slap ratings on things willy nilly. You have to make decisions about how you're going to operate when it comes to living a life of purity. Joseph is motivated as a man living on mission to, he says, I'm not going to give in to this type of temptation. I'm going to say this quickly and move on because if I say it slowly and don't move on, I'm probably going to get in trouble with somebody. But he's quite ironic that in the last 15 years, much of our purity conversation has been focused around what girls wear and how they present themselves. And very little of it has been targeted at men to be men who flee from sexual immorality. And we spend all this time doing all these Bible studies on sexual purity, and they're all designed to make all of the women in our churches dress like Amish girls, and then Weird Al gets to rip a song and make millions of dollars because honestly that's probably somewhat accurate i just like to point out here that in this story joseph acts like a man 
who is convinced that God is holy. And if nothing else, we need a new generation of men who will continue to act like God is holy. So I ask this, what standards have you set up to live on mission in regards to the area of sexual temptation? In, the, in regards to the area of your own sexual desires, in regards to the, the idea that more than just keeping yourself pure for who you're going to marry, you're keeping yourself pure because there's a pure and holy God who has an expectation that you live godly in this present age. Don't buy into the Christian subculture of you're saving yourself for your future spouse. That is a terrible motivator. Is a terrible motivator. Why? Because it's not rooted in who God is and who he is and what his expectations are. Yes, save yourself for your future spouse is a great tagline only if it's motivated by the fact that you are fearful of a holy and just God who desires you to live godly in this present age. So you're going to have to set standards and you're going to have to get to the point where you're tempted to sin you have made a regular habit of fleeing and not indulging. And this doesn't start and stop in the area of dealing with sexual temptation. This is every area of your life. Some of you are like, I, I, this is not a struggle for me. I don't know how that is for you, but... There are different sins that each and every one of us have. We've been covering them on Sunday mornings together, where if we're honest, the title of the series could easily be moved from respectable sins to indulging sins. Sins that we indulge in because we like them and they are comfortable to us. Second scene. We're going to read a transition verse. So look at verse 21. We know that Joseph is, Potiphar comes home and basically sends Joseph to prison. Hardly a real good thank you for not sleeping with my wife, when you think about it. If you're Joseph and you're shackled and you're on a way to prison, you're thinking, are you serious, bro? Are you serious? Crazy lady in there has been, like, ask 14 servants. They hear every day she's coming on to me. Joseph doesn't respond that way, and far too often that's our response. We want immediate justice right then, right there. This is what happens, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And now we're going to transition to the second scene, which I would call living on mission in suffering. Look at verse number 20. Now it came to pass on the third day, chapter 40, sorry. Chapter 40, verse 20. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We know the story. Joseph is in prison. We've got two 
guys in prison who have dreams. Joseph interprets them and tells them what's going to happen. I still can't get, ever get over the fact that you're in prison with other prisoners and you tell one, hey, you're going to be restored to your job. The other one's like, oh, sweet. Tell me more. The, this is the second guy. And he's like, tell me what my dream is. And Joseph's probably like, um, you're not going to be restored. Actually, they're going to kill you. Like, I got to go. Like, but he's like, I'm in prison. So Joseph is in prison for an extended period of time. He interprets the dreams correctly. What he says comes to pass. And Joseph has to be thinking, right? I did what was right. I didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. I did what was pleasing to God. And now I'm in prison. And I tell these guys what the right dreams are. Even the guy who was going to die. I was honest with him and told him, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. I was honest. And for another two years, Joseph finds himself in prison. And, and prison isn't like prison now. Prison isn't like Green Square and cable TV. Which is way better than what was experienced in prison in the biblical time period, much less than Egypt in the days of Pharaoh. But Joseph doesn't stop living on mission, even though he's in a, a position of suffering. And I think this is what trips up Christians. We, we live on mission. We do what God tells us to do. We, we live boldly for him. It gets us in a little bit of hot water. We start to suffer, and then we stop. Joseph, though, is not going to stop. Look at chapter 41. So we know Pharaoh has dreams. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know what these mean. And none of the other people who honestly probably worship the devil or some kind of black magic can't figure it out either. And then Joseph's homeboy's like, oh, hey, wait a minute. I remember that when I was in prison, oh, yeah, I guess that was two years ago now, that uh, he interpreted my dreams rightly. And Pharaoh's like, well, let's, let's get him up here. Verse number 14 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph's got a choice to make. I've been in prison. And now this guy thinks I'm his meal ticket. And he thinks that I'm the one who does it. And notice what Joseph does, even knowing that there's no guarantee that he's out of prison. He says in verse 16, so Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. This is the guy who can get him like make up an answer. Right. And then he's like, oh, yay, you're free. But in the back of Joseph's mind is not I need to get out of this situation. What comes to his mouth when tested in a time of suffering, when tested with an opportunity to get literally out of jail free, what does Joseph do? 
he makes sure Pharaoh understands the interpretation I'm going to give you isn't from me, it's from God. On mission, living for God, this is really important. Means that in times of suffering, our answer is not trying to get out of suffering. But to live in a way that is in accordance with God's desire and will. That he be made much of. Not that this would be over. It's a mind shift flip for a lot of us. Because when suffering comes, we want it to be over. Joseph says, you got to understand, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from God. So I ask you something tonight because I recognize that in a room like this, there are a lot of you who are going through things that you probably haven't even told some of your immediate family that you're experiencing. Some difficulties, some hardships, some things that seem like they're insurmountable and that the pain and the suffering is just too much to bear. And you came in here tonight wondering, what can I do to get out of this? And you didn't want to hear what this text says that Joseph presses into his suffering, doesn't look for an escape route out of it. So when it comes to us living on mission, even as we think about the remainder of our summer and this fall, we don't look for the easy way out. We look for the God-glorifying way of promoting and making much of him. So I, I, I just ask you, like, when you experience times of suffering in your own life, who are you running to for help? Are you running to a friend that is going to tell you what you want to hear in an effort to make it easier? Or are you looking for someone to maybe tell you that everything's going to be okay and it's really not your fault and all of those different things? To kind of try and puff you up? Or are you looking at times of legitimate suffering? And I'm not talking about legitimate suffering for sin. I'm talking about suffering that comes at the hands of other people. From things that are outside of your control. And are you looking to friends, loved ones, and most importantly God's word. And saying, I'm not going to try and flip out of this. I'm going to try and press into it and see what God has for me. Can I just be honest with you? That mindset will probably save your collegiate career and your early adult career. Because unfortunately, what life more often than not does to people who are in the age bracket of 18 to 25 is continually over and over and over again, kick your teeth in. That's why you come up with phrases like adulting is so hard. Back in Judd's generation, they just called that life is hard. And I know that's hard for some of you to say, how can you tell me to do this? I'm just saying, like, look at Joseph's life. Everything wasn't perfect and everything wasn't easy. It didn't immediately get better. And at the end, yes, he comes out ahead more than he does behind. 
but he still had to engage and wander and walk through suffering to get where God had him. The same thing happens with Job. The only benefit is God gives us the end of the story now because we can't experience the end of our story now. So we look to to him and what he's done with others and press into it. And this might be the most surprising one of all of the C's, but it's the one we'll conclude with. On mission at work. Genesis 41, you could say 37 to 57, is probably one of the most overlooked sections of Joseph's life. Because immediately in 42, you have his brothers coming back, and that creates all of the drama and the suspense in the story as it comes to a close. And so what ends up happening, because we're terrible readers in general most of the time, we we skip over what we would call the filler stuff to get to the really juicy stuff. Like, oh my gosh, is he going to kill him? What's he going to do to him? Like some of you, when you read this story every time, you're like surprised. I can't believe he let them live again. It's like a, a new story every time you read it. You're like, oh, he's going to kill him? No, he says he, he lets them live. Like, and you're thinking if they were my brothers and sisters, I would murder them. What happens next as a result of Joseph being faithful to give God glory is God's hand is still over Joseph and he rises to power. Now he goes from being, he goes from second in Potiphar's house to prison to second under Pharaoh. He goes from being the guy who probably had some dirty, nasty jobs to being the guy when he walks in the room. If you don't kneel and bow, somebody's cracking you on the back of the neck. It's a pretty big jump up the ladder. And so what we read here in these verses, if we had time, we would read them and we would see that Joseph rises to power. Pharaoh puts him in charge. And what Joseph does next is arguably the most important thing he will do outside of reconciling his relationship with his brothers. What he's going to do is he's going to be a very good manager over all of the food that Egypt has because the good times are here, but there's a famine coming. And Joseph operates in that world knowing there's a famine coming. And God has placed me for such a time as this to take care of these people. And what ends up happening is we know that Joseph basically saves the people And that they are able to survive through the famine because of it. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, where we first started is where I want us to finish before I ask you what we call the application questions on this particular scene. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Because of God ordaining the events of Joseph's life, he places Joseph in this role. And Joseph's faithfulness to God and to what God had placed him in ends up saving many lives. 
would just ask you, how are you living on mission in the places where God has placed you? Primarily your work. You may hate your job. There are days where I hate this job. I hope that's, we're probably going to have to edit that out. I was thinking about coming to the college ministry until I heard the college pastor said he hates his job. Um, there are days where this job is difficult. There are days where this calling is difficult. But I, I don't want to, there are days where this job is just bringing to me some great incredible stuff if you're just doing it because you're God. And I'd be a fool not to get, like, to make you think that this job is so much more difficult than a job where you have to interact with people who don't know Jesus. I come into an office environment where everybody loves Jesus and they love each other most of the time. 90 to 95% of the time. And the 5% that we don't is spread out, so it makes it seem even less than what it really is. But some of you go into work environments that are incredibly hostile towards you and your faith and you living on mission. And you got to make a decision. And you got to live one of two ways. Either God put me here or I put me here. And if you say I put you here, you're a fool. And I don't mean that in like the good joking way. I mean that in the Proverbs way. So if you don't know what that means, go read the book of Proverbs. It's not a good thing. God has placed you where you are to minister to the people he's called you to minister to, regardless of whether or not you may find them particularly appealing or attractive. That's why we have to remind ourselves as we try and honestly be people who are living on mission for God that we would say, you know what, like, I know this day is probably going to be terrible, and I'm not going to enjoy 90% of what's going on here today, but I know that God has placed me here, so I'm looking for the opportunities that God has given me to be able to invest in the people around me. Even if you work in an environment where 90 to 95% of the time everybody gets along and everybody loves Jesus, God still placed you in that role for a specific time specific season and he's given you that calling so don't waste it let's be people who look at the different areas of our lives we just looked at three tonight and say how can i live more on mission in these areas because ultimately i'm obsessed utterly overwhelmed by god and his calling that he's placed on my life and i can't help but live for him every moment of every day. And yes, I'm going to sin. And yes, I'm going to fall short. And yes, I'm going to make mistakes. And yes, I'm going to be difficult to work with. But praise God that his love covers those sins too. And it helps us to be people who live on mission every day in every way.